Hello from Amiskwichi in Treaty 6 Territory and Alberta Métis District 10. This is Sean Gleason, your host for Shout for Libraries. We're a show about topics and trends in the field of librarianship brought to you by Library and Information Studies students here at the University of Alberta. Librarians navigate the complex world of information ethics, and digital citizenship has more than its share of ethical landmines. Luckily, there's a course for that. In LIS 530, Technology, Information, and Society, students delve into contemporary debates in the area of digital sociology. Today's guest episode is a podcast produced for LIS 530. It's a deep dive into sharenting culture and the issues of privacy and consent. The voices you'll hear are Monica Mattiford and one of our Shout team members, Lothian Taylor. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. Today's topic is going to be community or commodity, mommy blogging, and monetized sharing practices. My name is Monica Matterford. I'm a second year MLIS student at the University of Alberta. And my name is Lothian Taylor. I'm also a second year student at the University of Alberta in the MLIS program. Yeah, we decided to talk about mommy blogging because we both kind of have different points of view. For me, I kind of describe myself as chronically online. I'm spending a lot of time on YouTube and of course these mommy vloggers always come up in my feed and you know what it's really easy to fall down those rabbit holes. Yeah and I'm coming at it from a parenting perspective I guess. I have three teens and I've always tried to be really conscious about finding a balance between them spending time online as a resource for, you know, community and connection, but also then finding the, like, the safety that's involved with not revealing too much about themselves online. That's kind of where my background is. Yeah, and we just like to say that we are recording this in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory at the University of Alberta. So for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about mommy vloggers, this is a big vlog culture. So a vlog is a video log, so a YouTube video. These mommy vloggers, they're predominantly white female parents, and they share their trials and tribulations of motherhood to an online audience. Many of these vlogs are Christian-based. They're not neutral in their presentation of views. Many of these mothers have multiple children, and some of these mothers are homeschoolers or unschoolers where the child's learning is self-directed. These vloggers became popular. Well, first they started more so as bloggers, like kind of in the early 2000s when blogging was becoming a thing. And it began to ramp up in popularity around the year 2005. And it reached its peak in the blog sphere at around 2010. Originally, these blogs were kind of more so for parenting sharing. These mothers would share what they were doing in raising their children online. And yeah, it was quite inspirational in a lot of ways, I think. Just yeah. from my memory of being viewer of parenting blogs was people would share the things that they'd made and the things they'd done together. And, it, you know, sometimes if you were having a day where you couldn't even get out of your pajamas, you were like, well, someone out there is doing it, so maybe I can do it. It was really aspirational. Yeah, think, yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of really good information on these blogs, like whether it's like recipes or different ways to play with your child or share different educational tips and things like that. Mm-hmm. So the term sharenting was coined a little bit later on, especially when these mommy bloggers became more popular in a video space and they moved to YouTube. Bridie Hamilton defines sharenting as parents sharing their information on social media. So 
we see a lot of these mommy vloggers and mommy bloggers not just having their platform on a blog. It's like you can see them on social media. So whether it's the website formerly known as Twitter or Instagram, and now YouTube is definitely a big one. These mothers started making vlogs of their day-to-day life on YouTube to kind of share what they were doing. This became a really big thing when the YouTube Partner Program was launched. So that was launched in 2007, and that's when you get revenue from YouTube through ad sharing, or you can also get sponsorships for these videos. So you see you see a lot of HelloFresh and BetterHelp and things like that. Right. So, But for this program, eligible creators must have at least 1,000 subscribers, so that is a pretty big threshold, and 4,000 hours of video watch time. Now, 1,000 subscribers might seem big to us, but if you look at some of these vloggers, like a lot of them have over a million people tuning in, subscribing, watching their day-to-day lives, not just of them, but of their children. Mm-hmm. So the, the revenue varies, but obviously you get more deals and you get more ad revenue with more people who watch. And so many of these mommy vloggers have become quite wealthy thanks to YouTube and have quit their full-time jobs to become professional momfluencers. So you see these parents going to Disney World every weekend or two, or they're going on different vacations. These mothers have Teslas. They have the best of the best for their for their children. Mm-hmm. Even the really kind of rustic-looking, wholesome, homesteady kind of things. They're, yes, exactly. they stoves in there that are worth $10,000. Yeah, or there's and, this yeah. one that I've watched. She was showing like herself putting on an apron. But I looked at these aprons, and they were $265. So a main issue for those who are critical about momfluencers and mommy vloggers is that they tend to overshare everything about their children's lives. Now, these children don't really understand the concept of consent. These mothers are filming their pregnancy. Many times they film their birth. So these children are literally have the camera in their faces since their first breaths. So even if they do consent, they don't understand the impact on their self-governments and their privacy because that's, that's all they know. Yeah. Like they've grown up in this this limelight that their parents have put them in. So it's not unlike stage parents, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But even though they can control it, it's because they're filming their daily lives. Right. So things that are shared in these vlogs, there's things like tantrums, medical appointments, puberty. Like imagine if you going through puberty and your mom taking videos of it and putting it up online for an audience and then having that audience criticize it or even try to sympathize. And these are total strangers. Yeah. And it's so strange because it must be just normalized in their household. Yeah, exactly. Everything I do is for views. And so you don't even know maybe that it's unusual. Yeah. Ideal. Exactly. Yeah. These kids grow up and they just are completely conditioned. Yeah. Uh, The reason why we brought up this mommy vloggers in our podcast is because there's been some incidences in the news of different mothers who have made this their job, but um, are not doing the best at parenting and have gotten into a lot of trouble, Mm -hmm. to say it lightly. So the one you probably have heard a lot about is Ruby Frankie. Her channel was called Eight Passengers. It's, don't know if it's still up or not, but it's currently defunct yes but it's been around it's been around for 10 years at its peak it had 2 million subscribers so what happened recently i think it was just as recently as this past august like late august too Mm -hmm. ruby frankie was arrested for multiple accounts of aggravated child abuse so she her all of her parenting was put up online but it was shown to be very authoritarian and she was very proud of this but a lot of the stuff was a, 
quite abusive. And to be fair, a lot of her audience did call her out on it. So like one example was her eldest son. She filmed this, him confessing it. He was made to sleep on a beanbag for, I think it was three months or something like that. And he had, and his door was taken because he had broke. I don't know if it was something like he got a low grade or something like that, but she took that the right to privacy away. And she confessed this to her 2.5 million subscribers. So what happened in August is that one of her sons ended up escaping the home when Ruby wasn't looking, ran to the neighbors and reported the abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And then that got the ball rolling. And now I believe she's in custody. Wild. Yeah. Another one is, is Micah Stauffer. This was a big in 2020. Now this, this woman, she was a vlogger. She was, again, she was a family vlogger. She became really popular in 2017 when she announced that she was going to adopt from overseas. And she ended up doing a 27 part series of her going through the trials and tribulations of adopting a child from overseas. She adopted a son from China. It was known that the son had medical issues. After three years of this child being in her home, she decided to rehome this child. And because of this, all of her fans were attached to this child because basically she had gotten her following because of the child. She ended up dropping out of YouTube and social media altogether because of this immense backlash. Because she said she said she was remorseful about it, but after the fact of it happening, her fans kind of reflected and thought, well, you were just doing this for views. Right. Yeah. 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 So I'm going to talk a bit about just the issues surrounding mommy blogging and mommy vlogging. I'm pulling back a little bit into kind of broader ideas. So um, I just wanted to bring forward that, you know, children are really an incredibly vulnerable demographic worldwide. I was looking at the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Children do have a right to their own identity and privacy, and they have the right to protection from exploitation. And I just thought it was interesting to bring that up because with this One Million March for Children Mm. that's been going on recently in Edmonton and across Canada, there is a lot of discourse about parental rights, parental rights, parental rights. And the reality is in Canada, we don't have parental rights. Our children have rights, we have responsibilities as parents. Mm -hmm. So I think it is kind of good to just pull out and look at it like broadly that worldwide, really, it's not our right to impose these things on our children. Exactly. They do have these fundamental human rights. Yeah. So you were talking about the Bridie Hamilton thesis, and she talks in there about just that sharenting has become normalized now that influencer marketing and influencer culture has grown. And so then that leads into parents taking an economic advantage of those opportunities. Because when you are, you know, taking care of a number of children, sometimes it makes it difficult or too expensive to find work out of the home. And so this ends up being a way to kind of generate income that sometimes I wonder if it just gets too big for people to manage right. or, or grows beyond what they ever thought it would. And I, a couple of the vlogs I've seen too in the past, like you see a lot of parents and they're saying, oh no, well, I'm putting all this money for my child's education in the future. I'm putting this all towards my children. But then you look at it and you see these moms buying a Tesla moving into a new house it's like are you really saving all of that money for your child i mean you don't have to be transparent with the financials but you got to think how much of this is actually really going towards the child well and that's something hamilton brings up too is that 
the children technically have no right over this money because it's it is gained using their names and using their images but there's no limit to the amount of hours they are allowed to work. So it's not like a child being on set. No. They don't have a, an agent or a manager looking out for them. They don't really have any say over how their information is used or disseminated or how their parents are you know, collecting money based on the things that are being revealed about them. So while the children are really a necessary part of the generation of the money that yeah. comes in, they then have no rights over that money, which mm-hmm. it's just a really skewed power dynamic. Then. Yeah. And you have to think like a lot of, well, a lot of these kids since their birth, they've been online, they've been involved in these productions, but we haven't had any cases yet, or at least very few where these children have grown up and kind of thought, Hmm, what happened to all that? We're just starting to get there now. I yeah. Think, where research is starting to come out where people are saying, coming yeah. forward and saying, I was a yeah. child of a parent influencer yeah. and this is kind of how it messed me up yeah really. I'm wondering how it's going to continue to evolve especially you're seeing like vlogging has become such a big thing now and you think about it it's been around now for over a decade mm-hmm. so a lot of these kids are growing up they're, they're moving into adulthood yeah and we're just yeah. now starting to see the impact of it yeah I saw something really interesting in the Hamilton thesis where she says that Crystal Abedin expanded on the concept of micro micro celebrities which refers to children who are, quote-unquote, intentionally groomed by their micro-celebrity mothers to become commodities and human billboards from birth. So it is really taking what you were saying about them just being in the public eye, like, right from the second they emerge. Yeah. But it really, she does really kind of tap into the insidiousness of it. That yeah. That it, it is, you know, it's not by accident that these children end up being so highly publicized. Exactly. It's, it's an intentional thing. Yeah. And, and it is a little predatory. Exactly. Really. And like, it's like not even, even before birth, these kids are getting monetized because a lot of these mothers, they don't just film their children. They film their pregnancies and they'll do pregnancy updates. It's kind of like that right is taken away from them even before they're, Absolutely, they're before out they're in even, the world. Yeah. yeah. I listened to a really interesting podcast on the Digital Sociology podcast. The guest was Kylie Jarrett, who talks about a feminist perspective on consumer labor in digital media. So she talks about the digital housewife. And it, it, it's kind of an expansion on what we read about in the Selwyn article about digital labor. But she does tap into a, a highly feminist perspective of it. And so she does talk a bit about the mommy blogging dynamics. But she kind of covers what we've covered as well. But it's just, a, it's an interesting further listening resource if people oh, okay. are interested. So we can link that too. So some of the concerns, like you said, that there's not a lot of space yet to study what the long-term effects are on these kids. But, you know, potentially, like, looking forward, we can maybe surmise that some of the potential effects could be, you know, impacts on employment possibilities. We all know that the internet lasts forever, so be careful to what you put out there because potential employers could be seeing what you put out there. And then this takes it a step back from them and it's they could be seeing what your parents have put out there on your behalf. And a lot of this, like not just for mommy vloggers, but you'll have people that create content and maybe their views have changed or maybe something they slip up, like there might be something in the background that that the audience shouldn't see. They take that down. But a lot of these fans, they'll make their own copies. They'll make their own archives Mm -hmm. and they'll put up an expose account. I have one quote that always stays. It's like, once you put something on the internet, it's there forever. It's there forever. Yeah. Yeah. So I was reading Priya Kumar wrote a 2021 doctoral dissertation 
and she says that this datification of children is alarming because it challenges their agency, eroding their ability to chart their own life path, which really it's just taking the agency away from mm-hmm. them for what's produced and what's, I guess, disseminated about them mm-hmm. without them having really any say. She says, too, that placing the full weight of responsibility on the sharenting parents isn't sufficient because there are broader socio-technical conditions that create and perpetuate the risks of this datification in the first place. So she's really saying it's a larger issue than just blame the mom bloggers. It's uh, a societal thing where we have to yeah. be conscious about exactly. the datification it's, of our... Like they're making the content, but you also have to the community of it because a lot of these, these vlogs now, it is just casual watchers mm-hmm. there's people that are love these families almost like you said a micro celebrity there's children that watch it because they feel a connection with the other children yeah. and stuff so it's like a parasocial relationship mm-hmm. yeah so if, if you don't understand what a parasocial relationship is when there is kind of a one-sided relationship with a celebrity figure and you feel that you have a friendship or a deeper connection with mm-hmm. this because you know so much about their lives but they don't know who you are they don't know anything about you but you feel that you're connected to them And then I guess even it links into the even broader idea that we, by creating uh, social media, by creating online content, are contributing to that datification of our own content. So the use of our data, it's not without our consent, obviously, but the use of our data in ways we don't even understand or be Mm -hmm. able to grasp in order to make money for larger companies and like I'm sh- Facebook. Right? And I'm sure too a lot of these momfluencers, they are savvy about the data because you're able sure. to get uh, data from YouTube about who's watching, yeah. where they're watching from, yeah. the age range, the demographics. That's easily obtainable through YouTube and I'm sure that these mothers and family bloggers are using those those data points to further create content, to further target that content. Sure. So how do we then as information professionals and LIS students What's our responsibility then as far as educating people, taking our base of knowledge and helping people to be more safe and to be more conscious about these things? I was just thinking that it is something that we can bring into our information literacy and media literacy education that we provide. I did note that social media is a democratization of archiving in a lot of ways. It's for many people the only access that they have to creating a personal archive for themselves and of their family lives and so forth. So you don't necessarily want to scare people off of using social media. You just want to maybe caution them about how wide it can really spread and to be conscious of who sees this, how might they be using it, and how might it hurt your child in the long run when you're sharing this, this amount of information. And then helping parents too who might be consumers of that media to recognize the potential harms and and to look at it really with a critical eye so that if things are going on that look suspicious, you know, you're in a place to call it out. You're in a place to say, I don't really agree with what you're doing. And and I think there might be, we just want to make sure that kids are safe. Right. Yeah. So, so I think that's our role maybe as information professionals is just to really promote the information and media literacy to help people be able to look critically at how they engage with yeah and this can simply be done just by doing promoting a media literacy talk at a library or even doing workshops about if you have like local people that want to become mom influencers like Mm -hmm. how to do this safely Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. sharenting maybe some cautious sharenting practices yeah and uh just really making people aware of 
of how far their children's images and, and data can be spread. Mm -hmm. uh, I encourage looking critically at it. Like you were saying, a lot of the mummy vloggers don't come from a politically neutral place. No. And, and there might be a bit of a political agenda behind the information and advice that they're sharing. And I think that curtain is being pulled aside and people are starting to see there might be other influences. This isn't just you and me and we're two pals sharing on the internet. Exactly. This is you trying to influence me in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So I think people are becoming more aware of that too. And that's something we want to encourage as library people. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Do you have any thoughts for us about this topic? Or discussions? Maybe even you have done some sharenting or have some experiences within the sphere. We would love to hear from it. Mm -hmm. Feel free to post in the forum. All right. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Just be mindful of what you put online because it is there forever. It's there forever. <laughs> the internet never forgets. Exactly. Bye. Bye. <laughs>